Good morning. It is uh, 11.07. Dave Rowland is going to be with us. Um, and uh, MoFreedom.org. Uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Board, this is uh, Squaw Warren's baby. She just uh, ushered this thing through. Uh, and apparently there is a problem with its funding being unconstitutional, and that is going to have some impacts on their rulemaking. We'll get to that. That's in about 15 minutes. But right now, and I've been, I've been uh, sort of teasing this, the kid is five years old when this happened. He's in a room, a huge room, got a nice little audience going here. He sits down in front of this piano. Clearly this recital was planned. And he starts to play. He's five years old. How long could he be practicing by the age of five to learn how to play piano? A year, two? I don't know. Can't be much. But he sits down in front of the piano and this is what he does. sheet music he's not reading the music he's playing this from memory I got a question for you is this a freak of nature or a gift from God how does a five-year-old acquire that kind of skill I, I've, I've got family that play piano that took lessons for decades and can't play like this kid can at five and at the age of five, how many years could he have been practicing? You know, the first year or two, he probably couldn't have reached the keys. So he's got what? At, at the very outside, three years. Probably more like two years. But listen to this kid play. Freak of nature? Gift from God? Which one is it? 874-9390. 800-529-5572. I suppose saying freak of nature is uh, probably the, uh, it sounds nasty and it, it, it isn't, it, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. But at the age of five, I guarantee you, I was not playing the piano much less with the skill that this kid is playing. You think this is some divine gift or just some genetic freak? Some, some gene somewhere in his brain that makes him the prodigy that he is? Is that a gift from God or just a, a genetic twist of fate? 874-9390-800-529-5572. You, I'm watching the video, and this little kid's fingers are just flying across the keyboard. He's not reading any music. He's just sitting there pumping it out, and it is magnificent. Gift of God? 
genetic twist of fate? What do you think it is? Because it's, it's really unusual at that age. Brian, what do you think? Gift of God or just a genetic twist? I'm going to have to go with gift of God. Yeah, there are some folks that are predisposed to do certain things, and the uh, little boy that is five years old was certainly given a gift that none of us have uh, been given. I mean, and there's so many different examples of this. Some people are really excelled in math, where I suck. (laughs) But, you know, they can figure stuff out at a very early age, and it's like, how... The heck did you learn how to do that? And this kid didn't have time to practice enough to get no. that good. But yes. as I recall, also some other famous composers like Beethoven and Bach and Mozart and others also acquired that skill at a very early age. And I don't know. I mean, figure skaters. Some people are really good at it and have just got the skill to take that on. Other people just can't. So, yeah, I'm going to go with gift from God. Wow. What an amazing, if it's a gift, it's amazing. I'll give you a few more seconds of this. Watch those little fingers go. I mean, it's just amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Genetic twist. And you said that that was how many years ago he's... I I don't know how many years old. I'm just wondering uh, if he has continued in that pursuit of greatness and actually will become a famous composer someday. Or or just a brilliant peanut. I'm telling you right now, I'd be at Carnegie Hall if I had that skill. Uh, And charging you $75 to sit and listen. Uh, Sharon in Springfield, uh, is that a gift from God or just a genetic twist of fate? It's a gift from God. That is a touch of the divine spark. And it's been given to artists all down through uh, the ages. Um, Mechanical genius, uh, Nikola Tesla, Mozart. It is a spark of the divine all right, Sharon, thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. How come we didn't get the spark of the I divine? Did. I did. <laughs> That's why. What? What? No, you're coughing. You got that cough again. <laughs> you got to get that fixed. <laughs> How do you think I got as good at this as I did? That's. Oh, man, wouldn't it be great to make that kind of music? Steve, is that a gift from God, or is that it's, just a... It's definitely a gift. It's, it's got to be a gift. I, you know, and I'll compare it with something. Years ago, back in the 80s, I saw a guy. Uh, he happened to come in town, and he was a shotgun shooter, and he would throw out, uh, they would throw out uh, maybe uh, six skeets, and he had a pump shotgun. P- plug was pulled, and he, he just uh, saw these off. He never would aim at them or anything. He was an expert at it. That's what I compare it with. But as far as learning this that fast, uh, that's a gift. Yeah. 
Five years old. Unbelievable. Yep. yep. Thanks. All right. Steve, thank you. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. All right. Dave Rowland is coming up next. And uh, Dave has several topics that he has brought to the table. One of them is the Consumer Finance Protection Board. But he also has some uh, stories of, of, well, about legislatures trying to get around the Supreme Court's gun laws. We'll find out about that and a little update on Missouri's voter ID law. Coming up on the Gary Nolan Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. It is 1119. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. And uh, before we get into any of the uh, heavy topics that he has brought to the table, including this Consumer Finance Protection Board, I'm really interested to hear about that. Last week I was on vacation. Dave filled in for me. And uh, on Thursday he had Jim Babka on with him. Now, Babka and Rowland are uh, two people who, uh, who, who I really, really admire uh, for their out-of-the-box thinking uh, and the clarity uh, that they bring to the program. And they disagreed, apparently, on Russia and Ukraine. And I, uh, I'm, it is, this is like Clash of the Titans for me, because that's how, in, in such high esteem, I hold both of these guys. So I am curious. I talked to uh, to Jim this morning. I, now I get to chat with Dave this afternoon. Well, it's still this morning, I guess. Dave, did did you change your mind at all, or did you think, well, maybe we shouldn't be there? Because you were in favor, I guess, of um, defending Ukraine. Did, did well, that dis- I'm not so sure that we. I'm not so sure that we did ultimately disagree. Um, we could have ended up disagreeing, um, but the, the biggest question that I had for Jim was, is there any role for uh, people to play where they see um, you know, basically a, an imperialistic tyrant attempting to subjugate people who are outside of his own country? Um, and, and we never really did kind of formulate an answer to that question. Um, and I think that you could look at it in two different ways. You can look at it, you know, does the United States government have a role and then do individuals have a role? Um, I think that we would certainly agree that we don't want American troops involved. We don't want American soldiers um, risking their own lives in direct conflict in Ukraine. Um, I think that that leaves open the question of whether the nation's interests might be served in assisting a country that is fighting against a tyrant. Um, and, and we didn't even, you know, we didn't ultimately get into that question. I'd love to have that conversation with them um, because I think that there's probably a lot of area where we would agree, but there might also be areas of disagreement. And I think it would be interesting to find those points of disagreement and to kind of articulate the, the arguments on either side. I think that there is a national interest in assisting a country that is you know, facing an onslaught from uh, a tyrant, um, if that does not mean that we're putting our own troops directly in harm's way, um, because I think that there is uh, a national interest in um, securing the world against these expansionist dictators. 
Um, but I also understand that there are legitimate reasons why people might disagree with me on that. And that was the, that was what I was trying to suss out when I was talking to Jim last week. Man, I wish I'd gotten a chance to listen to that live. But you can listen to it. Uh, just go to uh, 939theeagle.com uh, and uh, you can uh, go back to the archives. It was at well, 9... And if he's open to it, maybe that's a conversation we could have at some point in the future as well. Yeah, that would be fun. Uh, I'm telling you, the two of you, <laughs> this, is, this is Clash of the Titans. I want to hear this. Uh, all right, let's move on. I am, and you know, there's a whole hierarchy of stories that you've got here, but I've been concentrating on this Consumer Finance Protection Board because I don't think the federal government has any business getting involved in this. And you write that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, has ruled, essentially, that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is funded in an unconstitutional manner and that that has some implications for the rulemaking. Do tell. Right. So this is a, a relatively obscure board. It's not one of the first government entities that people think of when they think about, um, you know, what the federal government is doing. Um, but it does have an important role to play in how our economy functions. And the weird thing about this entity is when Congress set it up, ordinarily, um, a government agency is dependent on the annual appropriations process. So they require Congress to um, either provide funding or to perhaps restrict funding to these different agencies. But when Congress was setting up this particular bureau, they said, you know what, we're not going to subject them to the same appropriations process. They get to draw their money from the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve is not allowed to turn down a request for funding from this bureau. And the plaintiffs in this case said, well, wait a minute, that's, that's a, a separation of powers problem, because basically... Congress has a constitutional role to play. They hold the purse strings, right? They, you know, from the Federalist Papers forward, it was understood that one of the powers of Congress was the power of the purse. And so these plaintiffs were saying Congress kind of gave this federal agency its own power of the purse, and by by devoting that authority to a non-legislative body, Congress violated the separation of powers. And the Fifth Circuit had previously looked at a similar case, and they ended up saying, you know what, that's an interesting question. We don't really think that this particular case squarely presents the question, so we're gonna withhold judgment. But at the same time that they did that, one of the judges, uh, offered a concurring opinion and said, here are all the reasons why this is actually an unconstitutional delegation of authority. And the panel that, that issued this ruling yesterday, they came back and they pointed at that separate opinion. They said she was absolutely right um, that that this does violate the delegation of powers um, doctrine that, that Congress is not permitted to basically give away the power of the purse in the way that it has with this bureau. So 
now the question is what the fall well there are two questions the first is will the supreme court take this up um and that's possible um this is a very important constitutional decision and it may well be that the supreme court decides this is a big enough deal that we need to step in and weigh in on this um but let's assume that this opinion stands then the question is is where are the consequences um you know does the fact that this bureau has been functioning improperly, functioning in violation of the Constitution, mean that the regulations that it's adopted are no longer valid. And that's what the courts are going to need to sort out going forward. So really interesting case, really important case, even though it deals with kind of this relatively obscure government agency. So if they were funded illegally, then anything those illegally paid employees wrote, any rules they wrote, might not be legal either, might all just disappear? Well, that's, that's the argument. That's the argument. And, you know, the, the court did not offer, like, a, a real clear, bright line um, perspective on, on how this is going to uh, affect the regulations in other cases. Um, but it certainly raises the question that perhaps uh, the regulations that have been adopted either um, are unconstitutional on their face or that they cannot be constitutionally applied given the constitutional problems with how the Bureau has been set up at first. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I see Squaw Warren has steam coming out of her ears. Elizabeth Warren uh, really pushed this thing through. Uh, this was her baby. And uh, if it gets canceled, oh, my, she's going to be upset. Uh, shall we talk a little bit about uh, book banning? Yes, let's. Okay. Uh, so, so I, book banning is not precisely the right term to use, although it is certainly evocative. Um, so what's been happening over the last, you know, oh, two years or so is a lot of conservatives have been trying to limit the books that are available at public libraries. So they're not saying that these books cannot be possessed, cannot be sold, cannot be carried by private booksellers. What they're saying is when it comes to public libraries, um, the conservatives want to be able to control what books are on the shelves, and who has access to them. Now, part of the problem with this perspective is the U.S. Supreme Court has already addressed this in a case called Pico versus Board of Education back, I believe, in the late 80s. And they said there that it violates the First Amendment for the government to make choices about what's going to be on these public library shelves if the decision is based on the content of the books. In other words, it's one thing to say we have this neutral policy that says if certain books haven't been checked out in X amount of time, then okay, they're going off the shelves. Or uh, to have a policy in place that decides how you're going to um, put new books into circulation. Um, the issue is once the books are there, once they are part of the collection, 
who gets to decide whether they remain and who gets to decide who gets to check them out. And so there's a big, a big conflict over this right now throughout the whole state. Um, Secretary of State Ashcroft made a, a suggestion earlier this week about, you know, requiring libraries if they're going. It's 1135 and Dave Rowland was, is uh, with us. Um, it is a think tank Thursday. Uh, great attorney and uh, loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. We're talking about book banning. It's more like censorship uh, because apparently uh, Jay Ashcroft uh, is looking at having a little more control. Uh, as I told Jennifer Bukowski when we were chatting about this, uh, I don't even think there should be government uh, libraries. If there's a library, let it be funded by the wealthy or let people go on the Internet and you eliminate all of this. But he's not looking at banning the books. He's just looking at segregating them and saying minors can't have access to them. Is that right? Well, uh, yes, kind of. So um, essentially what, what Ashcroft has proposed is that the libraries would have to adopt policies to basically age rate the books in their collection. And then they would have to restrict access to um, what he calls age-appropriate um, patrons. And so, effectively, he's he's asking the government to establish the criteria that would allow young people to have access to information. And I got to tell you, I think... The real issue here is parents ought to be the ones who are making these decisions, not the government, not bureaucrats. If parents are concerned about books that you know their child might have access to, it's the parents' job to police that. Um, if the parents want to contact the library and say, I don't want my kid checking out these types of books. I think the parents can make that request. I don't so then the libraries have to find out who the kid is when he walks in the door. they got to catch him every time. Well, and no, you, you have library cards. I mean, yeah, but you you know, can, the, the library card says who it is. What, you can't and read so the in the library say, anymore? Oh, well, I don't think there's any way to police that. Like, I don't, I, I, I think trying to police that would be an absolute nightmare. But if the parent's that concerned about it, just tell your kid they're not allowed to go to that library. You know, there are private book collections out there. If the parent is that concerned about it, they can find a private book collection and take their kid there so that they know that they're not going to be exposed to any wild and dangerous ideas. Um, but but ultimately, I just don't think it's the government's job to substitute for the parent. You know, if if the parent wants to say, okay, this is my child's library card. I don't want them checking anything out. I think that's a reasonable accommodation. I think that it would be easy to implement. But as far as asking the library to say, you get you've got to make sure my child doesn't happen across something that I think is age inappropriate. I just think that's bizarre and ridiculous. Um, and yet that is, and, and again, I want to clarify, I like Jay Ashcroft. Jay and I have been friends for years. Um, this is one of those policy points where we disagree though. I think that, that this proposal is, is right out. I think it violates the first amendment, but you know, it is, um, it is going to be a big issue because battle lines are being drawn all over the state. One of the stories that I shared with you uh, showed that uh, kind of a counter-parents group has popped up in Nixa. There, there was kind of the conservative parents group that 
started trying to police the bookshelves in one of the local libraries, and this counter-parents group has popped up trying to prevent them from doing so. Uh, and so these kinds of conflicts, I think, are, are spreading throughout the state. And again, I think people should mind their own business instead of trying to make rules that bind everybody, um, you know, so it's well-meaning for your own children. It's well-meaning, but it's uh, the nose of the camel. I'm not sure that it is well-meaning. I mean, um, I don't think that anyone has the right to restrict someone else's access to information. Yeah, now, I bet. Yeah, I, I, about I, your children. That's something. I think Jay but, Ashcroft but is trying. I think Jay Ashcroft's uh, trying to protect children. And so it is well-meaning. Uh, I just think it's... Okay, yeah, I'd be willing to say I think his intentions are good. Yeah. Um, I, just, I just think he has, he's chosen a, a, a subject that um, I don't know that there's any constitutional solution for doing what he is proposing to do. Okay. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover here, so I am going to move on. Uh, judge dismisses a lawsuit over Missouri's new voter ID law. Who challenged it, and how did they? Uh, what did the judge decide? Or how did he? So decide? this is a case that that we touched on real briefly when I was hosting the show last week. Um, a group of voters and the NAACP filed this lawsuit represented by the ACLU of Missouri. And this is kind of this long running battle in Missouri over um, election integrity. And Republicans have repeatedly tried to get these voter ID requirements uh, to stick and the courts have just completely knocked them down over the years. Then Missourians amended the constitution to make clear Nope, the legislature actually has the authority to do this. And so it seemed like that should pretty well end the debate, um, unless there's a, a federal constitutional violation involved. This case went in front of the Cole County Circuit Court, and they said, you know what? There's just no standing here. Um, the, the plaintiffs have not been able to demonstrate that they're actually going to be deprived of their right to vote. Um, even if you don't show up with a voter ID at the, at the polls, um, you can still cast a provisional ballot and then either through coming back later in the day and bringing an appropriate ID or through matching signatures with the signature on file with the election authority, you can then have your vote validated. And the judge looked at it and he says, oh, look, I, I don't see any reason to believe that the plaintiffs here are not going to have their votes counted properly. And so he threw the case out. Now, with the election coming up in two and a half weeks, I kind of thought that maybe they would try and fast track an appeal on this to get a decision before the election takes place in early November. They have not yet appealed this. And, I mean, to be clear, it would have been early for them to, to appeal, but if you're under a tight deadline, like an upcoming election, the rules are a little bit more flexible, and they might have been able to go ahead and, and pursue it. They haven't, and so it sure looks like um, the voter ID requirements are going to be in place for this election, and we'll get a chance to see how they actually are used. Now, it may be that maybe someone does 
lose their opportunity to vote as a result of the ID requirements for this election. In that case, then they might be able to go back into the courts and say, here, look, at this particular election, I showed up to vote. I didn't have a voter ID. As a result, my vote wasn't counted. Then they would have standing to bring this challenge. But I'm not sure there's going to actually be anyone who can say that. I think that the way this voter ID requirement was written um, may well insulate it against a future challenge. Now, and again, to be to be clear, I'm not sure that the voter ID laws actually do much to preserve election integrity. Um, It's not if I wanted to commit election fraud, having someone show up at the polls pretending to be someone else is about the least efficient way to try and steal an election. I'm not going to say that it's, you know, <laughs> that it's appropriate for someone to do this. Absolutely not. It's still a violation of the law. But if we're worried about the implications for elections, this is a really foolish way to try and steal an election. But yeah, It may not you know, happen often, but as I always say, uh, kidnapping doesn't happen often either, but you don't want people to get away with it. Uh, I, yeah, it, can, it can happen. It can happen in this law. That's what it's aimed to prevent. Gun laws uh, in the news here. And there are legislators uh, around the country, particularly in blue states, uh, that are trying to circumvent the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, so far, I think they're, uh, they're pretty much getting crushed at every turn. But we'll kick that around in the next segment of the program. Right now, we're up against the clock with Dave Rowland. Freedom.org on the Gary Nolan Show. It's the Zimmer Radio Network. It's 1149, and Dave Rowland joins me, Gary Nolan, on the Gary Nolan Show, the eponymously named program uh, on the Zimmer Radio Network. And uh, he is more his, his uh, website, MoFreedom.org, loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. Uh, and uh, the Supreme Court had a pretty strong ruling on uh, the Second Amendment and apparently state legislators as in blue states are trying very hard to circumvent those rules. How are they doing, Dave? Well, let me start by just recapping what the Supreme Court did with this Second Amendment case, because it was incredibly unusual. As you and I discuss frequently, um, the way that... that Federal courts in particular usually assess constitutional claims is first they decide if a constitutional right is implicated and then they apply a level of scrutiny. They might apply rational basis scrutiny if they don't really care about the federal right involved, um, the constitutional right involved. They might apply intermediate scrutiny if they kind of care about it or they'll apply strict scrutiny if uh, they really care about the constitutional right involved. But with any level of scrutiny, um, there is an assumption that you can, the government can still win as long as it shows an important enough interest um, and shows that the policy that's being challenged is very closely related to and has been narrowly tailored to serve that very important governmental interest. What the court did with Bruin, which is the Second Amendment decision they handed down last year, Justice Thomas, writing for the majority, disregarded the standards of scrutiny. And he said, really, the only question that we're asking here is, number one, is there a restriction on someone's right to bear arms? 
And then if there is, can the government point to any analogous policy that was in place at the time the Second Amendment was either initially adopted uh, in 1787 or when the 14th Amendment was ratified and applied the Second Amendment to the states in 1868? If you can't show an analogous restriction on the possession or use of firearms from those relevant time periods, you lose under this analysis that Justice Thomas applied. Now, that's actually fantastic for those of us who believe in constitutional rights. Um, It really, really handcuffs what the government can do to restrict these constitutional rights. It is a nightmare for those people who want to do the restricting. And so you have states, particularly New York and New Jersey now, that have basically decided they don't care what the Supreme Court said. They're going to continue to try and push for restrictions on firearms, even if there doesn't appear to be any kind of a historical antecedent to the policy that they want to adopt. And so, you know, New Jersey just passed a law that would require permit holders uh, or people with permits to possess firearms to buy liability insurance. So it's an insurance mandate. Well, there clearly was never any kind of an insurance mandate in place uh, at the time that the uh, Second Amendment was initially adopted or when it was applied to the states. So without question, this should be considered an unconstitutional policy. And they have to know that but they're pursuing it anyway. I'll tell you what, what really interests me is it's like the mirror image of what conservative states were doing with abortion. So um, you had a number of states, including Mississippi, that clearly knew what Roe versus Wade said. They knew that these policies that they were adopting that were significantly more restrictive than were allowed in Roe versus Wade um, were almost certain to be deemed in violation of the precedents. What they kept doing, though, was creating these policies in the hope that the Supreme Court would ultimately change its mind, and it did last year in the Dobbs case. So what these states are doing is basically they are just accepting the idea that they're going to lose a lot of cases here in the short term. Uh, They're going to end up paying a lot of money to groups like the Freedom Center of Missouri that defend people's right to uh, to bear arms. And they're just accepting that this is gonna be the status quo in the short term in hopes that ultimately they can get enough justices to either overturn Bruin outright or severely restrict its scope. And so that's kind of the strategy that's at play. Um, as, as we discussed many times, I thought it was a suspect strategy when it came to abortion because I didn't like the idea of basically funneling a bunch of taxpayer money to these groups that were defending what was at the time thought of being a right to an abortion. Well, that's exactly what the left is doing right now. They're going to be funneling money to um, these advocacy groups that are going out and fighting for Second Amendment rights unless and until the Supreme Court decides to change its course after Bruin. Uh, just as an aside, uh, there is a challenge to the Second Amendment Preservation Act. Uh, is there any movement there at all? Do we have any indication uh, when or if or what? 
the there courts- has been no movement yet. Um, so there was a motion for summary judgment that was uh, filed and heard in the federal case. The court's been sitting on that for, I believe, about four months at this point, three or four months at this point. Decision could come down anytime. It hasn't come down yet. Um, the state level case that involved Kansas City and uh, St. Louis and St. Louis County, they filed a motion for summary judgment and I believe a response is due from the attorney general's office next week, if I remember correctly. Um, And so then it will be another couple of months until we get a decision that that case will have to be argued in front of the circuit court. And then there will be a decision on that um, probably several months in the future. I wouldn't expect a decision on that until next spring at the earliest. You know, as I look at that legislation, I just don't see how it inhibits law enforcement from doing their job. I, I I don't I, there's not an angle I can see that from. Well, well, their their point is they don't like that the legislature has told them what their job is. Um, the law enforcement agencies want to be able to decide for themselves, uh, you know, that they can help to enforce federal law. And the legislature, pursuant to Article One, Section Three of the Missouri Constitution, which says the people get to decide, they get to control their police. Um, they said nope. We do not want our police forces cooperating in the enforcement of these federal laws. Um, Well, as far as I'm concerned, the Constitution is clearly on the side of the Second Amendment Preservation Act here, he said, because he helped to write it. (laughs) So clearly, I think that it's constitutional or I wouldn't have written it that way. Uh, Are there any other implications outside of gun laws? Um, well, yes. I mean, so this whole issue of federalism is an important one, and you've had people on both sides taking their own positions. So the left wants to say you can have sanctuary cities uh, and recreational marijuana despite federal law. You've got the right saying that we ought to be able to have Second Amendment sanctuaries. It, so there's really, I think, the solution is let everyone, all, all the states decide for themselves and keep the federal government out of it. Makes sense to me. Uh, I don't think we're going to have enough time uh, to cover the final topic, um, dealing with the uh, Bolivar uh, district and uh, hiring an evangelist uh, for a school assembly. We're just not going to have time for that. Uh, but maybe we'll catch that next week. I'll see if I can get Jim Babka and you together uh, on the program at the same time with me as fantastic. the mighty moderator. Yeah, uh, I'd love to do it. I think it would be fascinating. Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. You might want to hit slash donate uh, because he may be representing you in court. It's very expensive, except that he doesn't charge you. He just relies on donations. Dave, thank you for being on. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.